Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends, so thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to the new man beyond the macho jerk and the new age wimp. Your host is men's coach, Trip Lemire. Do you think your choices and actions are logical? How much do the people around you influence how you live? And how are good intentions making us fragile? Social psychologist and best-selling author Jonathan Haidt writes books that help us understand why we do some of the wacky things that we do. Today, we're gonna talk about why good behaviors are so hard to stick, why we're so concerned about what others think of us, and why the folks who appear to be standing up for others are probably just trying to make themselves look good. Welcome to The New Man. Today we're talking with Jonathan Haidt. He's a social psychologist. Currently, he's a professor at NYU's Stern School of Business. He's the author of some of the most fascinating books that I've read on helping us understand why we do the things that we do and why we seemingly just can't get along with each other. Uh, He's written The Happiness Hypothesis, The Righteous Mind, and his latest that he co-wrote with Greg Lukianoff, I hope I said that right, is called The Coddling of the American Mind. Jonathan Haidt, thank you so much for talking today. My pleasure, Trip. All right. I'm an OG fan. I go all the way back to the early hits. I go back to the early stuff, the happiness hypothesis. There's a And there's a thread that runs through your books that, that I'm picking up that says, as humans, we're not as rational, we're not as reasonable, we're not as logical as we would like to believe. We may think we're being logical, but we tend to make choices that are very emotional, or I'm going to use the word automatic, um, which has me starting to think, has me starting to wonder, are we basically full of shit as humans? We're, we're creating this world after the fact, we're at, after, our, after our choices are made. So I'm hoping we can talk a bit about how and why our lives aren't so linear, how we can make certain choices, and then figure out how to use all this info to live a more empowered life, or, or do we have to figure out how to live like a Vulcan Spock? So uh, any any questions about that so far? No, I think if we can do that in the next half hour, it'll be a, a, day, a, a day's work. Easy, easy, right? Okay, so let's go back to the early stuff. Let's go back to the happiness hypothesis. This is where the elephant and the writer concept made a splash. Tell us a little bit, in a nutshell, what what you what you're trying to get across when we talk about the elephant and the writer. Sure. So my first book, The Happiness Hypothesis, uh, the subtitle is Finding Modern Truth in Ancient Wisdom. Uh, It's about 10 ancient ideas, 
when I taught Psychology 101 at the University of Virginia, I would um, uh, I would try to illustrate psychological principles with quotes from Shakespeare or Buddha or the you know, other or ancient societies. And it was just so interesting that that the ancients who were horrible at chemistry and, and biology, I mean, they have nothing to teach us in those fields, uh, but they were really good psychologists, or maybe I should say they said a lot of things and then there's this interesting filtration process where only the really, really good, useful, uh, insightful things they said come down to us. So ancient wisdom, East and West, is a tremendous repository of ideas for how to live. So the happiness hypothesis is uh, 10 chapters, uh, each focused on one of those truths. The first truth, the foundation of so much of psychology, um, is that the mind is divided into parts that sometimes conflict. And we've all experienced this. We've all experienced weakness of will. You know, you try to wake up in the morning, you say, okay, I'm going to get up now, and then nothing happens, uh, things like that. Uh -huh. And so lots of societies have, have given us metaphors for how to think about that, often like with a horse and ride or something like that. Uh, but I, in my own experience, um, especially in romantic relationships, I found that it's not really like horse and rider. It's like the 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 automatic emotional part is much bigger, um, and actually is kind of smarter. So the metaphor that I came up with is that the mind is divided like a rider on an elephant, uh, where the rider is our conscious reasoning. It's this little tiny bit of what we do, and the elephant is the other 99% of what our minds are doing. It's all the emotions, intuitions, and automatic processes. And the two are not at war. Um, sometimes they conflict, but more typically, the elephant is guiding us through life. The elephant knows what it wants. And the rider is actually a servant of the elephant. So when you say, are we full of shit? The answer is yes. Um, if you look at the stuff that comes out of our mouth, we don't actually know what causes us to do things, but we're always making up stories. We're always justifying. So yes, we are all by design full of shit because the rider evolved to be the spokesman, the uh, press secretary uh, of the much larger uh, uh, elephant. Uh, and so we make up stories um, to make ourselves look good in the eyes of others. We've got a rider we think is the one that's essentially steering and driving things. And what you're essentially saying is, no, he's making it up after the fact. He's justifying it. He's explaining it after the fact. It's fascinating because I, I think as men, we tend to think, well, my wife is emotional. She gets emotional. I'm not emotional. So we use this, we, we tend to confuse emotional being expressively emotional. Whereas in this conversation, we're starting to get just how emotional or irrational, I would say, a lot of our choices are when we've painted a picture that we're actually very logical and, and linear. All of us are driven by unconscious motives and, and intuitions. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. I, I think that's the that's the thing is we we may just forget how much that we're influenced and impacted by our own emotional or subjective world. Um, that's that's the point that I really wanted to to drive in there. Um, in the next book, the Righteous Mind, the, the the quote that stands out to me is "What binds us blinds us." So here we've got. On, on another level, where we start to lose our rationale, our logic, our ability to see things linearly and as they are because of the way that we uh, see ourselves as part of the group. Um, I, I want to understand what's at the core of this need to belong, because when I'm working with somebody and they want to make a huge change in their lives, typically they come in with excuses that say, hey, I don't have the time, I don't have the energy, I don't want to risk the money, uh, blah, blah, blah. And then what, what, what we really bump into, though— as the, as the thing that really stops them is, what will they think of me? And so I want to understand this, how this, 
huge force that drives us to belong and how it impacts us. Yeah. So uh, we're mammals and mammals uh, have very tight social ties, especially at least you know, maternal um, ties. Um, then very social mammals like dogs or humans or chimpanzees have all kinds of complex societies. And we um, uh, humans are pretty weak as individuals. We don't have sharp teeth or long claws, but our, our great power is that we can work together. Um, and a group of humans, especially a group of humans with rocks or spears, is pretty fierce and no other animal can, can oppose them. So that's our evolutionary history. So it benefit, I just want to underline, so it benefit as, we, as, a, as a species, we learned how to bond and learned how to, to create those bonds. And then there were evolutionary things that, that go into our wiring that say you do not want to do anything to make sure you get kicked out of the group. Is that what you're pointing to? Yes, my point is that we are what they would we are obligately social. That is, um, there are some animals that can live in small groups or can sort of go off on their own. Uh, but humans kind of have to, even an introvert, I mean, introverts wouldn't do well out in the jungle alone. Um, so some of us are more groupish than others, but all of us need to live in groups. And I think it helps explain a lot of weirdness of modern life. My point is just that we are a tribal species, an ultra social species, a hivish species living in a variety of ways that don't conform to the way we evolved. And therefore, we often feel dissatisfied. So what I'm getting so far is that we're, we're way more emotional than we give ourselves credit for. We are hugely impacted by our need to belong to the tribe, to the group. Even if we're not aware of it, even if we think we're introverted, we're still very much attuned to what the others are doing so that we can be a part of that. And that really drives a lot of our choices now we're getting into the latest work, the coddling of the American mind. You did this with Greg Lukianoff, and we talk about the three untruths here. And again, we're back to some emotional stuff here. So tell us, yeah. what, are the, what are the three untruths that are impacting the way that we're bringing up the next generation? But I, I think they also go into, I mean, a lot of people that, that are kind of living into this stuff too. I don't think it's just this generation. So tell us about that. Yeah. So the book has its origins in this new moral culture that emerged on American college campuses, uh, elite ones at least, in 2014. Um, and so if, if your listeners, uh, if, if you've heard words like safe spaces, microaggressions, trigger warnings, um, um, bias response teams, things like that, all of this stuff, these were pretty much unheard. I mean, they might have existed in some in, in some departments uh, going back to the uh, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, but they burst forth in 2014 plus or minus a bit. And it took a lot of us by surprise. And the sign of it was stud some students acting as though books, words, ideas, and speakers were not wrong or offensive, they were dangerous. And if, uh, you know, if, pe if people have to read this book or hear this word, um, they could be harmed by it. And if the speaker comes to campus and gives a talk that I don't have to go to, I can still be traumatized. Wow, I just gotta underline that. So a, an, a, an idea isn't just confronting for me or I don't, I don't like it or it pisses me off. I'm going to be hurt by it. I'm gonna be damaged by this idea. That's right. But actually <laughs> an interesting twist on this is, is students rarely argue that they themselves would be traumatized or damaged. It's usually that other students would be. And so it's, it's not, so it's in partly a psychotherapeutic notion which is that everyone is fragile. And let's say if a woman has been raped and she's asked to read a Greek myth, that has, a, you know, Zeus, you know, rapes Leda or, you know, whatever. There's lots of stories of rape in, in mythologies. It's this idea that if a, if a person has suffered or been traumatized and then a word reminds them of that, they will be re-traumatized. Now, that's bad psychology. Um, there's not really evidence of that. P PTSD, of course, is real. But the thing that triggers a PTSD flashback is not necessarily going to be just like the word. You know, it's not just like saying Vietnam. 
will trigger a Vietnam vet. It might be the smell of a particular kind of food. It might be the sound of a helicopter. So it's a kind of a naive bad psychology put forth by students, I think, who are um, caught up in a call-out culture. Um, so in our book, we really try not to blame people. We try to understand what happened. And what happened since social media came into our lives um, is that many young people are immersed in a new economy of prestige. That is, in order to, we all want to look good to our friends. We're all afraid of, of suffering reputational damage or embarrassment. And social media has put young people into worlds in which one wrong word, one thing they say, someone can call them out on it. Someone can and say, oh, you know, you said this, that's white supremacist, or that's fascist, or that's homophobic, or whatever it is. Um, and when young people live in that world, and they're, they're very hungry for prestige, they get practiced in calling each other out. And, and so this is a very inhumane world. It's a world in which many of us now feel we're walking on eggshells. Um, we have to really self-censor. Um, so anyway, this is all a lead up to the three great untruths. Mm -hmm. Where did this world come from? Why is it so so um, strange? And the story we tell in the book is about where it came from, why it is so bad for people. It's so unhealthy. Um, and so the three untruths. Now, the first one is uh, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Now, obviously, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche uh, said what doesn't kill you makes you stronger or what doesn't kill me makes me stronger, he said. Um, and, and he understood the principle of anti-fragility, that, that human beings, like, like, the, you know, like the immune system is the best example, it's not fragile. Um, if you treat it as it's fragile and you protect a kid from dirt and germs and bacteria and peanuts, then the kid will become fragile because you're denying them the opportunities to grow strong. And so children need to grow strong. They need to experience stress. They need to experience minor risks. They need to experience exclusion and teasing. And here's where I think we do begin to see an interesting gender difference. Um, girls and boys are equally aggressive. Girls' were, aggression is often relational, boys is more physical. Um, but boys do a lot of teasing, wrestling, um, testing each other, and in that way they grow strong. Um, boys need to do that. Um, girls sometimes have more, at least the explicit idea, that you should be nice, that teasing and exclusion are bad. So even though they'll do exclusion, um, a kind of a feminine view of childhood is kids be nice, be nice all the time. Uh, and I think our kids have been raised increasingly uh, in this way. With good intentions, adults have tried to get kids to be nice. With good intentions, we've tried to stamp out bullying, which is important. Um, but I think we've gone too far to the point where we're denying kids the conflicts, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the fights, the teasing and exclusion that they actually need to experience in order to develop um, their basic social skills. So we've taken kids who are naturally anti-fragile, and by overprotecting them, we've actually made them fragile. This has led to an explosion of anxiety disorders, especially, um, also depression. Those two categories are going way, way up. No other categories of psychiatric problems are going up, just anxiety and depression. Uh, and I think it's from overprotection combined with then living in, um, living in a sea of social media. Right. If I never learn how to take a punch and get back up, then I'm going to be terrified of punches for the rest of my life. I may not like a punch, but I, at least I know I can get back up and, and we're robbing that opportunity uh, to grow and to learn for, for these people. Yeah. Well, that's right. Now the metaphor of a punch, a punch is a physical thing and you can't, you can't learn to literally ignore a punch. Um, but part of what's happening here is if someone criticizes you or challenges your ideas, a normal kid who's learned how to have arguments won't take that as a punch. 
Um, but what's happened is kids who are raised in this way, they're made fragile. You know, they cling to some certain idea. They come to college. Let's say they believe that America is, this, you know, is a horrible, racist, sexist patriarchy. And then some professor says, you know, well, actually, there's been a, you know, a lot of progress on gender equality. And in fact, some inequalities are the result of choice. Well, some students might interpret that as a punch. Mm. How, how, what are you, are you, you're invalidating my, my, my beliefs. You're, you're telling me that, 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 that my experience is not what I think it is. And, and that's an attack on me. So that's what we're finding is that students come to college uh, where you expect college to be a time when your beliefs are challenged, when you, you're, you're in the thick of things and you, experience, you encounter arguments on all sides and you learn to sort out truth from false, you learn to stand up for what you believe in, you learn to question and drop some things you believe in. That's the, that's the game that, we, that most of us signed up for. But beginning around 2013, 2014, some students began arriving who thought that they were fragile, or at least that everyone else was fragile, um, who bought into a certain ideology, and who took arguments or books or words or speakers as attacks. Mm. And, and therefore, we have to have the president of the university has to disinvite this person, because if this person comes, you know, I, I, you know who, who will stand up for the, the, the fragile people who will be harmed by this person? Right. Okay. We're starting to get that our emotional world is really messy. It's really unpredictable. And as guys, we can just want to stuff it, right? We can just want to push it away. And that ends up leading to forms of depression and, and anxiety. The book I'm currently working on is rooted in helping us understand that all of our external objective goals and accomplishments and desired outcomes are really just theories. They're proxies. They're strategies to have the subjective and internal and emotional experiences we want. So we've created our brains have created this strategy that says, you know what, if I just get that th this amount of money, if I get this job title, the low body fat percentage, whatever, that's where I'm going to feel comfortable. That's where I'm going to feel safe. That's where I'm going to feel freedom, aliveness, peace, and love. And what I'm helping guys do is help them see that they're ultimately playing for these subjective experiences to learn how to utilize our inner world, our emotional subjective experience more as a guide to help us see that these ideal experiences may be a lot more accessible and closer than we believe. We don't have to go create an empire or, you know, climb the top of this corporate ladder in order to have the experiences we may want to have. And I'm not advocating hedonism or only doing what feels good, uh, but I am trying to help us connect this divide that's starting to, to show up, which is I can't trust my feelings. My feelings might be irrational. My, my, they're not very dependable. But at the same time, if what I'm ultimately playing for is not just to have more money in the bank or to have this uh, title after my name, um, I know that I want to have these subjective experiences. Um, how can we start to, to find some harmony there, some peace there, and, and build some trust or to, to have our emotional world become an ally? Uh, of course, right. subjective experience is, is extremely important. But I think a funny thing about humans is that we often do things for prestige, um, even when they don't make us happy. And, and, and um, we were programmed to seek certain outcomes, we're programmed by evolution to seek certain outcomes. And sometimes those outcomes don't, uh, they, they can lead us into, into uh, conditions that can be unpleasant at times. Here, here's the way that I think about it from the happiness hypothesis. There are a number of simple-minded hypotheses about happiness, which are that it comes from getting what you want, or happiness comes from within. Um, and the, neither of those are really correct. I, I think the best way to think about human happiness is that it comes from between, that is, it comes from getting the right kind of embeddedness. And human beings need to be um, embedded, or they need to get relations right in, in three ways, between themselves and others, so that's relationships, 
between themselves and their work. They need to feel um, productive or agentic or, or, or that they have some effect on the world. And between themselves and something larger than themselves. And this goes back to the ultra-sociality we talked about, that you're part of something bigger. Um, traditionally, it, it was religion, but it could be it could be the military, it could be being a, a, you know, a doctor who sees yourself as having a mission, a medical mission. Um, there's all kinds of ways to find a sense of, of being part of something larger than yourself. So I think um, we need to get the right kind of admit, embeddedness. And men and women have seek different kinds of, uh, of embeddedness. Women tend to have stronger relational goals and men have stronger achievement goals. So I, I think that men, um, to really feel fulfilled, I think men, and it changes as they age, as men get older, um, they need, really need to have a sense that they're, they're not so much competing to get the women anymore. They're competing to leave a legacy. They're, they're trying to be nurturing and, and uh, they um, take on mentorship roles. Um, so I think men need or, or often feel that they thrive or feel most satisfied when they can see that they're having some effect um, on others. Men have greater needs for effectance. Women have greater needs for relatedness, individual or, or two-way uh, uh, relationships. Um, so I do think that um, achievement achievement is important, although we easily get carried away with it. We get caught up in rat races. Right. This is what modern life is particularly good at doing, is hooking us into rat races uh, where we just basically raise the bar for everybody and then we're not, not satisfied. Um, but I tend to look at it that way, that we, we evolved as these hive creatures. We're now living in a different way. And if we don't attend to those three needs, those three kinds of relationship, then we're not going to be as happy as we could be. Is it possible to have a certain sense of emotional authority where we say, hey, I've got my preferences. I can go follow the herd. I can go follow the pack and, and get my degree and get my job at the corporation and do what everyone's doing. Or could I essentially say, hey, you know what? What, what actually lights me up? What's the thing that actually brings me joy? Because I think we can get into this domesticated place where we let go of our authority. We just say, well, I've been told what to do my entire life, so I'm just going to continue to follow that path and hope that it plays out, hope that it brings me fulfillment. And I want to advocate where the guy gets in the seat a bit more and he says, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to learn from my own experience where I, where I experienced that sense of fulfillment. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to, and that would require that we have a relationship to that emotional world, to, to that, that ability to, to, to course correct and say, Hey, you know what, I'm tired of studying this, or I'm tired of going down this road. This doesn't do it for me anymore. I want to go down this road. This is, this is where I feel more alive, more, more free. Yes, I, I think so. I think that um, I, I, well, I haven't really thought much or talked much about ideals of masculinity and femininity, although I think it's incredibly important. I think we're not supposed to talk about um, masculinity in my field. Uh, in psychology, masculinity is supposed to be a bad thing. In fact, the American Psychological Association recently published some guidelines. I haven't read them yet, but it sounds like it's all the usual stuff you'd expect about how terrible masculinity is. Um, but I think that I think that um, uh, a, a man needs or or to, to feel like a man, one needs to have a sense that you are your own person, you are more agentic, you choose your path. You use the word domesticated. Um, that, that does sit poorly with, with most men, e you know, even though I think you and I both share notions of masculinity that involve being a good father and provider, and you might say domesticated in that sense. But, um, but I think that uh, a man who goes along with the flow is, is less of a man. And a man who is able to uh, choose goals, chart a course, overcome obstacles, and reach that, um, I think that kind of masculinity, uh, that kind of strength, 
um, is still beautiful and respectable in our in our modern uh, you know egalitarian time. So I would um, you know one tool that I think is there are a number of tools that I think are helpful. I teach a class on positive psychology at New York University, and uh, um, one a tool that many find helpful is the the uh, 24 strengths of positive psychology. So if you go to viacharacter.org. Uh, you can take a free survey that, that uh, tells you how you score on 24 strengths and virtues. And so if, uh, you know, so mine are the, the things like curiosity and love of learning, a variety of strengths that are just ideal for a, for a professor. So if you know what your strengths are, you'll have a better sense of, uh, of what kinds of professions will let you use those strengths every day and what kind of, what kind of uh, um, a profession, what kind of a career is right for you. Yeah. And when you see tests like that and understand that there's an elephant that's driving a lot of this and that there's group dynamics that are driving a lot of this, do you find that those things can be dependable? Or I, I, I know that's just so dangerous to throw out the baby with the bathwater when it comes to this subjective stuff. Or I, I want to find that thread where it's yeah. like, you know what, it's valid. Even though it's subjective, it's still valid. Well, my, my view is that as individuals, we're all kind of stupid and we, we become smart depending on the kinds of groups we're in and the degree to which we seek out or at least encounter challenge. And so um, if you're in one group that has very little viewpoint diversity, um, you know, let's say ideological diversity, everybody thinks the same way, you're not going to get smarter over time. But if you seek out um, criticism and challenge, you do get smarter over time. Mm. And similarly, in terms of choosing your life path, you don't want to go along with the herd or with what everyone else says you should do. But at the same time, um, other people can often see you better than you can see yourself. So I think that when making major life decisions, it is important to check them with others, in part just because our confirmation bias is so strong, we're going to only find evidence to support what we want to do. Um, others can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, which is see the flaws in our plan, uh, see the countervailing evidence. So I think that um, an, an optimal way of navigating through life is to learn who you are, know what, what you're good at, what gives you satisfaction, um, to think about ways to to, to, to choose a, a course based on that, but to check it with, with people that you trust, people that uh, you think can help you think through things. Um, that's really the secret to our genius is, is the different kinds of social organization and relationships that we're able to enter into. Right. So we embrace our emotional world. We're, we don't try to become a Spock where it's where we try to fool ourselves into believing we can be completely rational or we can stuff that that stuff. But we've got to we've got to make friends with it. We've got to get to learn it, even though it might be messy or nonlinear. Well, that's right. My, so the view I came to in The Righteous Mind is that individual humans aren't terribly rational in that the evidence of confirmation bias is just so strong. We're just not that good at thinking through uh, issues where our self-interest or, or social standing are at stake. Um, but we can be rational if you put us into the right kinds of groups. So rationality is a wonderful thing. It's just not something, and this was one of my arguments with the new atheists, people like, like Sam Harris. Uh, he and I used to really you know, argue a lot and we're kind of enemies a while ago. We, we've since become friends. We're on, on good terms now. Um, but my view of the new atheists was that they overestimated individual rationality. And I wanted to say that as individuals, we're not terribly rational, but if you put us in a good group, and that's what a university is supposed to be. That's what a jury is. If you put us in a good group where others uh, ha are expected to challenge us, then we actually, the, the group can actually be quite rational and quite smart. Really? Okay. Because my experience is that groups make us dumber, you know? So I, I, I love the... On the group. It depends on the group. Yeah. If you put us into a mob that all shares a one goal or one ideology, we get dumb. 
But a, like I've been in the academy since I was uh, since I started graduate school in 1987, and you develop a way of thinking because you know whatever I say, the other people in the room are going to turn it around and think: Is that literally true always? Are there exceptions? Mm. So, and that's great. And that you know, I so and that's how that's how my work gets better is by by exposing it to criticism. Yeah. And that's actually one of the best things about Twitter. I think Twitter and social media. Um, are problems for our democracy, and they de- they de- you know, decrease trust. But it's a wonderful way to put an idea out, and then you read the comments. And like every time I say something substantive, I read the comments. I say, "Oh my God, I should have thought of that." Uh, so it's a kind of a low cost way, unless well, it could be high cost if you say something that you know people shame you for. But uh, but we need we need our critics. That's my point. Okay. Yeah. So we need to we need to choose our groups wisely. Uh, do they do they challenge us? Do they challenge us to to be more expansive, or do we find ourselves getting smaller in order to uh, stay as a part of that group? You know, whatever binds That's us. Blinds way, yeah, us. smaller. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. So what what expands us? What has us get stronger? That may not be always be comfortable. Exactly. Um, okay. Uh, great. And I, I, I we got off the three untruths. Uh, do you still want to go? Oh, down? Yeah. Them? I'm way off here. Those hanging. Yeah. Should I say the other two? Please, please. Okay. So the second truth. Um, is always trust your feelings, or rather, that's the second great untruth. Yeah, and that's where I, we got off, right? Because that's that's the whole idea is that if we've got feelings, can I never trust them? Do I always trust yeah. them? That's where I wanted to try and find yeah. that place. No, you're right. So actually, we, in a way, we just covered that. Yeah. And so, um, so in the book, in the Calling the American Mind, we talk. Uh, it really has its origins in Greg Lukianoff's major depression. Uh, he nearly killed himself in 2007. And then he comes out of the hospital and he learns cognitive behavioral therapy, a wonderful, uh, very easy to use technique in which you rec- you learn to recognize your irrational thoughts, your distortions, like catastrophizing, black and white thinking, labeling, blaming. Yeah. Um, so he's learned to stop doing that. And then in 2013, 2014, he started hearing students do it. He, he runs the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, defending free speech rights on college campuses. So that was the origin of this whole project, was why all of a sudden are students acting like, oh my God, if this person comes to speak, it, you know, it'll people will die, it'll be a disaster. Like, no, it, it'll be a speech that you don't have to go to. Yeah. Um, so we are big fans of CBT as a way to improve your critical thinking. We're big fans of reasoning. Uh, we just think that people aren't good at it um, unless they're in good groups or unless they learn techniques of CBT. Um, so that's the second great untruth. Okay. And then the third great untruth is, Life is a battle between good people and evil people. Um, humans are, have been prone to this from time immemorial, and we're prone to see, uh, you know, if if uh, you know if an, you know, an Amalekite kills a, you know, a Jebusite, then a Jebusite can kill an Amalekite or whatever. I'm just making up names that might right. be. Um, there, there's an ancient tribal way of thinking, and we easily see our group is good and the other groups are evil. And the, one of the great accomplishments of modernity is to get past that. We, we, in the 20th century, the story of a big part of it was, hey, how about we stop judging everyone by their group membership? We treat people as individuals and we give them the benefit of the doubt. We give them civil rights. What do you think? And, and I think the, the incredibly rapid progress um, of women's rights, gay rights, civil rights um, in the late 20th century is something to celebrate. But on college campuses now, many students, not well, in certain departments, the people who think this way, the safetyism stuff, um, they're taught to see America as being eternally divided between groups, the oppressors and the victims. And so it's basically the, you know, the men are the oppressors, the women are the victims, the whites are the oppressors, everybody else is a victim, etc. So this is called intersectionality. Uh, you teach students to see the world in terms of a series of, of bipolar dimensions. 
and the bipolar dimensions go together to point at the ultimate villain, the straight white male. He's at the intersection of the three most important axes of oppression. This is a terrible way to teach young people to think. Um, you know, the 20th century was about overcoming this, that we could have a free society in which people have opportunities open to them. Um, people easily can be led to hate based on, on group. And you know, in some departments, they're kind of teaching students to do that. So a lot of our book is, is encouraging people to rethink identity politics, that you need a politics of identity. You need to have ways that groups can, can um, demand rights if they're not being given them. Um, but there's a paranoid way of doing it, which is you teach people to see the world in terms of good and evil people and good and evil groups. And that is just, that's like pre-modern. That's really bad news. Yeah. And when we dehumanize, when we see, when we villainize that other, uh, it's easy to perpetrate really bad things because we don't see them as human. We don't see them as having their, their yep. point of view and, and really bad things go there. You know, I, I wanted to bring it up because we're not, I, I these three untruths, at least two of them show up in the work that I do with guys and I call them the fragile, the fragile rich guys. Um, they're the ones that want to make some big shift in their life, but they're afraid to do anything because they're afraid to be uncomfortable. They don't see themselves as anti-fragile. They don't see themselves as they, they were, they forget that they've gone through hardships and they've grown stronger from them. Uh, they highly overestimate the risks they may have to face. And then if they feel scared, they, it must mean that something is terribly wrong and they, and they really overestimate the fear that they have. Um, and so I, it was one of the, the overlaps that I see, at least in my world of like, wait, this isn't just for the young people that are coming up. We can do this when we're in our, in our mid forties, mid fifties. Uh, and we're, and we're thinking about making some changes. So I, I love the work that you're doing, Jonathan. I appreciate you talking way over the time we set, uh, to have today. Go visit the coddling.com. Jonathan Haidt, thank you so much. My pleasure, Chip. Great talking with you and, and, uh, good luck to all the guys out there and on your journeys of self-improvement. If these interviews are helping you, then please visit The New Man on iTunes and leave us a positive review so others can discover the show more easily. Thanks for listening.